Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. We're in the midst of an Advent series called The Scrooges of Christmas. Of course, that name Scrooge is from the Charles Dickens story, A Christmas Carol. And uh, Scrooge has become to be synonymous with anyone who has one of those bah humbug attitudes toward the Christmas season. Maybe you know some people like that. Well, the truth of the matter is that there are actually some characters in Scripture who are Scrooges. Scrooges, characters who hated the idea of Christmas. They hated the idea that God had this plan for the Son of God to come to earth in the flesh. And so we're looking at a different one of these Scrooges each week. Scrooge number one was Satan. And we looked at a text in Revelation chapter 12, 1 through 5, about his Scrooginess. And today our Scrooge is Herod the First, who was also known as Herod the Great. There are multiple Herods in the Scripture. This is Herod the First, the one known as Herod the Great. And so we're going to spend our time in Matthew 2 today. We're going to divide it up a little bit. We're going to be in verses 1 through 9, a quick stop in verse 12, and then also we're going to conclude with 16 through 18. Would you please stand with me as I read the text in Matthew chapter 2? It says, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men and secretly, secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that had been, they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Verse 12, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let's pray together. Father, um, sometimes we learn as much in the scriptures from characters that are a negative example of what not to be like and what not to do, and we have certainly one of those here today. God, would you 
open our eyes to see how we might be more like Herod than we realize. And God, would you do a deep work within us, a work of sanctification, a work which makes us more like Jesus than like Herod. And so God, I ask that you would speak through me and to me and to this congregation, that we would hear your voice today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in this text, we see five aspects of Herod's Scrooge-like character. There's going to be five of them. Don't worry about writing them all in those blanks right now because we'll take time with each one of them. But as an overview, they are Herod the imposter, Herod the builder, Herod the worrier, Herod the deceiver, and then finally, Herod the murderer. If there was any greatness to Herod the Great, it was perhaps that he was the greatest, one of the greatest of all the Christmas Scrooges. I think Satan last week was the Scroogiest of them all, but Herod the Great certainly is a great Scrooge. And so let's look at that first aspect of his character, which is Herod the imposter. Herod the imposter. Look with me at verse 1 where it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Now, who was this Herod the king? Let's take a few minutes to talk about where he came from and what was his identity. Though he was known as the king of the Jews, he was not an ethnic Jew at all, which caused the Jews in large manner to to despise him. Rather, he was a descendant of Esau rather than of Jacob. How did Jacob and Esau get along? You know the story. And so here we have a descendant of Esau who is called the king of the Jews, and that did not sit well with the Jews. He gained his title king of the Jews um, from the Romans. It was the Roman Senate who installed him as the governor of the four political districts of Palestine. And those break down this way, um, and we'll see on the map. These include Judea, which is where Jerusalem was located, Samaria to the north, Galilee even further to the north, which you remember we spent a lot of time with Jesus and his ministry in Galilee in our study of Mark. And then a place called Idumea to the south. And these were the regions over which Herod was governor. He answered to the Romans. And a large part of what he was installed to do was to keep the peace. Just keep order. Keep everybody as happy as possible. But he was in this interesting in-between place of the Romans and the Jews. The main thing to recognize, it's so crazy to think about, is that though Herod was known as the king of the Jews, was he a king? No, he was merely a governor underneath the Roman emperor. And was he a Jew? No. So the king of the Jews was neither a king, nor was he a Jew, which made him an imposter. He was an imposter. But he was also Herod the Builder. In an effort to glorify himself, he built lots of monuments to himself, but also to play the political game and to curry favor with the Jews, Herod did a lot of building projects in Jerusalem and throughout his territory. And the most important of them from a political perspective is that Herod renovated and expanded the Jewish temple. He renovated and expanded the Jewish temple. And it was a project that was so big It took several decades to complete. Now, how do you think the Jews felt about that? Yay, Herod. But 
boo Herod because of who he was and some other things that he did that were oppressive to them. So this love-hate relationship between um, Herod and the Jews, this very uneasy alliance that had been formed. His true colors, however, were shown when he placed the Roman eagle over the entrance to the temple. All right, so again, yay Herod, boo Herod, a very uneasy alliance. He also built many fortifications around Jerusalem, as well as theaters and palaces and fortresses. Um, He was a great builder, and that's really how he earned that title, Herod the Great, because he was a master builder. Third, Herod was the imposter, he was the builder, but he was also the worrier. He was the worrier. Look with me at at the second half of verse 1, where it says, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. You know, perhaps at the end of the day where Herod most excelled in greatness was in his paranoia, Uh, especially true when he viewed someone to be a potential rival, which was frequently. Whenever Herod felt threatened, he responded with brutality, and that even included he murdered one of his wives, he murdered several sons, he murdered other relatives. Now, why did he do this? Simply because he suspected He feared, he worried that they were plotting to overthrow him. And so his reputation for paranoia and brutality was such that the emperor Caesar said of him, it was really kind of a a clever quote that he said. He said, it was safer to be Herod's pig, which in Greek is hus, than to be Herod's son, huios. And you can see the wordplay here in the Greek that we wouldn't necessarily pick up in the English. Those two words, pig and son, are very, very similar in the Greek. His paranoia was further illustrated by the fact that he built a a series of elaborate fortresses that were on a planned escape route to Egypt. So if everything went south and he had to run for his life, he at least had palace fortresses on an escape route to Egypt. You talk about being a prepper, you know, and preparing for the worst case scenario. Here he was. He was the consummate warrior. So you can imagine the alarm bells going off in Herod's head when these wise men came to him seeking one that they called what? The king of the Jews? The text says he was predictably troubled. That word troubled is from the Greek terasso, which literally means to shake back and forth, to be be agitated like water boiling or like a volcano ready to erupt as, as, as volcano Herod had done so many times before. All of this meant that the imposter king of the Jews would do whatever was necessary to eliminate the legitimate king of the Jews. Let me say that again. The the imposter king of the Jews would do whatever was necessary to eliminate the legitimate king of the Jews, and therefore, Herod the worrier would become the next one of his character traits, Herod the deceiver. Herod the deceiver. Look with me at verse 4. 
And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now this is mind-boggling. I want you to hang with me here for a second. Um, 700 years Before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, a prophet named Micah predicted that it would be so. Think about the magnitude of that for a moment. 700 years before Jesus was born, a prophet Micah predicted that it would be so. And and this prophecy and fulfillment are such strong evidence for the authenticity of both the Scriptures and the legitimacy of Jesus as the Christ. I love Old Testament prophecy, New Testament fulfillment, seeing how everything fits together, and this is one of the most exciting for me. Now, Bethlehem was not the place you would predict for the Messiah to be born. It was, it was truly a little town like the Christmas carol, right? Oh, little town of Bethlehem. That's, that was accurate. It was truly a little town. And it was located only five miles from Jerusalem, Bethlehem, back in the Old Testament, was the hometown of King David, and so thus it was known as the city of David. And though made famous by David in Old Testament times, at this time, Bethlehem in the New Testament was little and humble. There was nothing exciting really about Bethlehem at this particular time until the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus decreed that a census take place there. And this pregnant woman, this very pregnant woman, Mary, and her fiancé Joseph had to travel there from Nazareth to register for the census, and that was when God Almighty came to earth in the flesh and so fulfilled Micah's prophecy from 700 years earlier. Now, when Herod learned that the king of the Jews, so-called, had been born in Bethlehem, he became obsessed with this little town. I, I would venture to guess that in Herod's rule, he gave Bethlehem very little thought until now. But now he became obsessed with it. And we read in verse 7, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Hey, go, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now we know better, right? We know that Herod had no intent to worship the child. Rather, he was plotting to do the opposite, to eliminate this threat to his throne just as he had done so many times before. This was just another in a series of his efforts to eliminate what he viewed to be the competition. And so Herod here attempts to deceive the wise men into being his informants, to get them to do his bidding so that he can fulfill his murderous act. And his deception appeared to have worked because it says in verse 9, after listening to the king... They went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now, by all appearances, the wise men had fallen for the trap, right? The wise men were leading Herod directly to his intended target. 
Herod the deceiver seemed to be on the verge of another conquest, on the verge of accomplishing his goal of eliminating the legitimate king of the Jews until we read in verse 12, the wise men being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. You got to love it, right? You got to love that just as every one of Satan's previous attempts, and we talked about those two weeks ago, how from the Garden of Eden, Satan's desire has been to try to sabotage God's plan for the coming of the Messiah. And here's another effort that Satan makes to destroy Jesus, and it fails. And it fails. God the Father intervened with a dream and directed the wise men away from Herod and away from the child, thus protecting Jesus, reminding us, church, that God's purposes can never be thwarted. God's purposes can never be thwarted. However, just like Satan doesn't give up easily, neither did Herod. And you can see a lot of Satan in Herod, can't you? Even in terms of some of these character traits. Herod would not give up his efforts to eliminate that true king of the Jews. And so Herod the deceiver became the fifth and final of our character traits for him, which is Herod the murderer. Herod the murderer. We read in verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This is a terribly tragic event, which has come to be called the Massacre of the Innocents. Herod attempted to cover all of his bases by killing all of the children in Bethlehem that would have corresponded to the birth date of Jesus. Now, again, not to burst your bubble, but you know our traditional manger scenes with the shepherds and the wise men, not so much, okay? The, the, the wise men came probably as many, as it says, as two years after the birth of Jesus. And they came to a house somewhere in Bethlehem where Mary and Joseph were living with, at this point, probably the toddler Jesus. And so, to, in an effort to eliminate Jesus, Herod eliminates all children two years old and under. Now, the historian Josephus, which we, we, we look to a lot for confirmation of biblical events, it's interesting, he doesn't mention this. He never once mentions the massacre of the innocents that we've come to know, and that has caused some people to say, well, it probably didn't really happen then if it wasn't mentioned, but why is it understandable that the historian Josephus didn't make note of it? Do you have any ideas on that? Why did he not mention it? Well, likely it is because there were probably, and I say only, let me, let me put this in context, but there were probably only 10 to 30 children who were killed in the massacre of the innocents. Why? Because Bethlehem was small. How many children two years old and younger were in the little town of Bethlehem? Not that many. And so that was new to me. I always envisioned this, wow, thousands of kids being eliminated. Probably it was as few as 10 to 30. And in the scope of history and in the scope of even Herod's brutality, that was kind of small compared to some of the other things that Herod had engaged in. But for those 10 to 30 families, how did they feel? This was an unspeakable tragedy. An unspeakable tragedy. 
An unspeakable tragedy not unlike that described in the Old Testament by the prophet Jeremiah when God's people were forcibly taken into exile. You know the story, right? How um, Judah um, and Israel, the, the two, the divided kingdom, but each, each di- division of that kingdom um, had a season where they were taken into exile, forcibly taken out of their homeland, families at times murdered, families that were separated, families forcibly taken away. A very sad and tragic time. And so it says in verse 17 of Matthew 2, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now let's, let's talk about this for a minute and see how some dots are getting connected. Um, if we go back, we have Jacob, right? whose name was later changed to Israel, he had a wife, his favorite wife, named Rachel, whom he loved very much. And Rachel was one of the mothers of the nation of Israel. Rachel died. Guess where she was buried, after all? She was buried in Bethlehem. Now, fast forward about a thousand years from Jacob and Rachel Jeremiah was a prophet a thousand years later who ministered to God's people who were being forcibly removed from their land in the exile by the Babylonians. And he wrote in Jeremiah 31.15 about the sorrow of the moms who were watching their sons being taken from them during the exile. That's what Jeremiah wrote about in Jeremiah 31.15. And now here in Matthew 2, Matthew, the writer likens the sorrow of those mothers during the exile to the sorrow of these mothers in Bethlehem whose sons were massacred. Does that make sense? A lot of moving parts there. And in both examples, Rachel. Rachel, who was a mother of the nation of Israel and was buried, of all places, in Bethlehem, she was a symbol of these mothers. She was a symbol of mourning, of mourning mothers in Israel, whether that was in the exile or whether that was here in Bethlehem, connecting lots of dots in Israel's history, which again, I get very, very excited about. So those are the five character traits of Scrooge number two, Herod the Great. We have Herod the imposter, the builder, the warrior, the deceiver, and the murderer. As I prayed at the beginning of this sermon, you may be thinking that you are nothing like Herod, right? He was a terrible, evil person, not at all like us. But the truth of the matter is, I think if we were to to take a moment right now and to examine ourselves we might find that we are far more like Herod than we realize. So let's, let's take that moment and examine each of these character traits briefly to see how this is true. First of all, Herod the imposter. Herod the imposter. Remember, Herod attempted to possess the throne that rightfully belonged to Jesus. Let me say that again. Herod the imposter attempted to possess the throne that rightfully belonged to Jesus. In church, just like Herod, we too seek to possess the throne of our lives that rightfully belongs to Jesus. We want to rule. We want to call the shots. 
We want to be in charge. That was the very essence of the sin in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. We want to be on the throne. And here's where it gets even more twisted. Not only do we want to be on the throne, we try to get Jesus to serve us while we're on His throne. Which is definitely Herod-like behavior. But listen carefully. One of the things we learned from Herod, who so was just tormented. Talk about a tormented individual. True peace, true contentment, and true joy can only be experienced when Jesus, the true King, is on the throne of our lives. I'm going to say that again. Because some of you are attempting to find peace and joy and contentment in your lives. And while you're trying to be on the throne of your lives, it isn't going to work. True peace, true contentment, and true joy can only be experienced when Jesus, the true King, is on the throne of our lives. So I ask you, is Jesus on the throne of your life? If he is, then your life is marked by obedience to him. Your life is marked by a desire to serve him, to follow him wherever he leads. It is the only path to true contentment, true joy, and true peace. Next, we are like Herod, not only is the imposter, but we are like Herod the builder. You say, Chad, how is that? I'm not a builder. Well, the truth of the matter is, every single one of us is building a life, aren't we? Every single one question, what kind of life are we building? Life. And we are confronted with the question, what kind of life are we building? Nothing like the milestones of a year to get our attention and to remind us about how fast time goes, right? Whether that's Thanksgiving or Christmas or a birthday or the turning of the calendar to a new year, it just reminds us that time is going so quickly. Every day we are one day closer to being in the presence of Jesus and having to give account for the kind of life that we have been building. It says in 1 Corinthians 3.10, I hope this gets your attention this morning, let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, the judgment day, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, please note, because this could get confusing, let's not be confused. This is not speaking of our works earning for us eternal life. I loved what Alice said in her baptism testimony. She came to that place where she realized she couldn't do anything to earn it. She had to receive it as a free gift. It is an act of God's grace to us that He initiates. All right? That's how we become children of God, by receiving the free gift of God's grace. This is talking about our works as believers 
and whether or not we will receive eternal rewards or not. So we are saved by God's grace alone as a free gift, but how we build our lives has great significance for how we will be rewarded or not. As the text says, let each of us be careful how we are building. And we need to be confronted with that question on a regular basis because as time goes so quickly, we can just kind of get on autopilot and not be intentional about how we are building. And the truth of the matter is, some of you are here today and you're building with a lot of wood, hay, and stubble that's going to get burned up. And I believe there's going to be a lot of regret that goes along with the wood, the hay, and the stubble that you are building into your life that isn't going to last. If Jesus, the building inspector, were to come and inspect your work today, the building that you are working on, what would he say? And will you be rewarded or will it be burned up? So we're like Herod the imposter. We are like Herod the builder. We're also like Herod the worrier. Anybody here worry? Anybody here wrestle with anxiety? Do you see your pastor's hand raised? Yeah, you're in good company. But one of the things that we notice in Herod's story, watch this, is that he made some tragically bad decisions that were motivated by anxiety. When we make decisions rooted in our fears, our anxieties, our worries, we can do some really, really bad things. And as a matter of fact, because of his worrisome nature, he was continually obsessed with protecting himself, which actually brought harm to others. Our anxiety, our worries, and when we act in our own self-interest so much of the time, it can also bring harm to others. But fortunately for us, we have something that Herod didn't have. What is it? We have the Prince of Peace. We have the spirit of the Prince of Peace who dwells within us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He will always be there. And because of that, it says in Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And I would add to that, my Bible tells me that God is for us. He is not against us, and he loves us so much that he gave us Jesus. Will he not then give us all other good things? He's a good father who gives good things to his children. doesn't mean life's going to be easy. Jesus said in this world, you'll have trouble. Count on it. There'll be trouble. But we also have the God of the universe who loves us and is for us to lead us through the trouble to lead us to our own promised land, the land of eternal life in his presence. Not going to be easy, but we can have peace because he is the Prince of Peace. How might Herod's story have been different had he himself had the Prince of Peace than if he himself had been led by Jesus? How might your story be different? Just as Jesus said to Martha in Luke 10, 41, he said to Martha, 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 you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. And what was that one thing? To be with Jesus. 
to know him, to be intimate with him. That is the antidote for our worry, for our anxiety, which is all rooted in fear. So we are, in fact, like Herod the imposter, Herod the builder, Herod the warrior. We're, we're also, unfortunately, like Herod the deceiver. Look back with me at verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, highlight that word secretly, and ascertain from them what time the star had appeared. Um, that word secretly, it just flashes in front of me. You've heard that quote, character is who you are when no one is looking. Character is who you are when no one is looking. When, when you are in secret, who are you? We know who Herod was, but who are you? When we're not trying to publicly project a certain image of something that we aren't really. Herod was a deceiver. He attempted to project a certain image as, as that of a worshiper. I want to worship him, when in reality he was a deceiver and a murderer. His inner character did not match his outward behavior. In church, this is one of the most dangerous places in all of the world to be a deceiver. You can come here on Sunday mornings. You can kind of keep to yourself, wear a mask, be anonymous. And who you are here on Sunday is something totally different than who you are in secret the rest of the week. The solution for us as a church, as a body, is radical transparency accompanied with radical sanctification. And you're going to hear me beat this drum forever, but for me personally, as I've witnessed it, the best context for that to happen is in a discipleship group. Where else are you going to be transparent and not try to portray something that you're not, but to try to be real with some trusted brothers or sisters and in that environment to be able to get down to the nitty-gritty of who we really are so that the Holy Spirit can transform who we really are to who we really want to be. You'll never become all that you could and should be in Jesus Christ until you have that kind of radical transparency, not only with brothers and sisters, but with God himself. Who are you in secret? Some of you are very different than what we see here on Sunday. I'm glad you're here. I want you to be here. But I also want you to not be the deceiver that we see in Herod. I want you to be, in reality, who you profess to be with your mouth. So we are like Herod the imposter, Herod the builder, the worrier, the deceiver, and lastly, the murderer. And you say, Chad, I'm no murderer. I've never killed anyone. But let's, again, pause for a moment. How does the Bible define murder? And as the Bible defines it, we're all murderers, right? Proverbs 18, 21 says this, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruits. Our words will either give life or take life. Further, Jesus defined murder this way in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You see, as far as Jesus is concerned, murder is more than just an act of physical violence. What is it? It is also an act of verbal violence verbal violence in which we use the tongue to take life rather than to give life. And the tragedy of this kind of murder is that it can be repeated over and over again. You can murder someone an infinite number of times with your mouth, with your tongue, with your words. 
And sadly, in this sense, we are like Herod the murderer. There isn't a one of us that hasn't at some point used our mouths, used our speech in such a way that it murdered the character of another human being created in the image of God. And as far as God is concerned, it's no different. It's no different than the physical act. And so before we pat ourselves on the back and say, I'm no murderer, may we allow the scriptures to search our hearts and to say, time out, time out. How does God view it? How does God view us? So I don't want my life to resemble that of Herod, even though I, if I'm honest with you, it does. And I especially don't want my life to resemble how Herod's life ended. Let's go back to Josephus for a second. The historian Josephus said this about the end of Herod's life. This is rated R. Herod died of ulcerated entrails, putrefied and maggot-filled organs, constant convulsions, foul breath, and neither physicians nor warm baths led to recovery. A miserable end to a miserable human being didn't have to be that way. What if, what if when the wise men came, Herod had said, I really do want to go find him. I really do want to worship him. I really do want him to be on the throne of my life. I really do want to surrender my life to him as the king of the Jews. Now to top it all off, when Herod knew that he was dying, check this out. He arrested the elite citizens of Jerusalem and ordered that they be executed at the moment of his death. Why? So someone in Jerusalem would be weeping when he died. Because they knew, he knew they would not be weeping for him. So truly, the story of Herod the Great is a cautionary tale to us all of what our lives could become if Jesus is not on the throne. Would you pray with me? Father, may we, each one, do a heart check right now and ask ourselves the question, who is on the throne of our lives? Are we the ones calling the shots and doing whatever we want or whatever feels good or whatever seems right to us, even when it is contrary to the explicit Word of God? Or are we truly surrendered? God, on one hand, I, I feel such anguish about Herod in the pain of, that he personally experienced in his life, the pain that he caused in so many others' lives. But God, you, as you always do, you take what Satan intended for evil and then use it for good. And so I pray even in this moment, you would take this terrible example and use it for good in our lives. And God, how we thank you for Jesus and his grace and his forgiveness and his offer. To, as Gary's favorite verse was in his baptism testimony, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and you are just to, to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, if there's anyone here today who is carrying around the heavy burden of unconfessed sin, they know that they are living in rebellion against you, not going in the right direction. You are not on the throne of their lives. God, may this moment be the moment of confession, of repentance, and of cleansing, and of renewal, and of a fresh start with you.
God, I pray that you would make it so. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.